0: Hi, you're listening to the Duty of Care podcast, a podcast produced by the Faculty of Architecture and the Built Environment of the Delft University of Technology. This podcast is sponsored by the Delft Design for Values platform, the TU Delft platform discussing values for engineering and design. I'm Roberto Rocco, Associate Professor of Spatial Planning and Strategy at the Delft University of Technology. In 2019, the European Union launched its European Green Deal, aiming to make Europe carbon neutral by 2050. We all know the transition to a carbon neutral economy is urgent. But will it be fair? Past transitions have always produced winners and losers, with the losing groups often facing unemployment and poverty, with dire consequences for social cohesion and social justice. Therefore, an essential dimension of the European Green Deal is the concept of just transition, that is, a transition to a carbon-neutral economy that is fair and inclusive to all, leaving no one behind. Sustainable, fair and inclusive urbanization plays a key role in this endeavor. With those ideas in mind, we organized a series of online events and courses that address planning and designing cities and communities for the just transition. By bringing together expertise from spatial planning, Urban Sustainability and Resilience, Resilience Engineering, Ethics of Resilience and Multi-actor Systems. We want to discuss the values in social-technical transitions and urbanization, namely issues connected to distributive, procedural and restorative spatial justice, as well as citizen participation, democracy and sustainability, understood in its three essential dimensions – social, economic environmental sustainability. In doing so, we wish to address the interactions between design and values with an emphasis on operationalizing spatial justice through inclusive vision-making and by using societal conflicts stemming from the transition as springboards to dialogue. So we came up with the idea of this podcast We wish to discuss and exchange ideas with academics, practitioners and students of the built environment to plan and design for the just transition with a robust understanding of the entanglement between spatial justice and sustainability. Today we have with us Trivik Verma. Trivik is an assistant professor at the Faculty of Technology Policy and Management at the Delft University of Technology. He leads the Center for Urban Science and Policy at the Department of Multi-Actor Systems, at TPM. Trivik's research focuses on tackling challenges of urbanization in an equitable and just manner. He is particularly interested in understanding the processes that drive and shape urbanization and inequalities from a computational perspective. The primary purpose of his contribution is to teach future data scientists to look beyond the technical power of artificial intelligence and recognize the possibilities and limitations of data and the spatial inequalities that galvanize as a result of data-driven technology and policy. By interrogating the socio-technical nature of urban problems. Students should then be able to approach solutions to these problems in ways that prioritize social equity and justice. Trivik, the floor is yours.
1: to talk about uh, the role of big data in urban science and policy. It's exactly what Roberta said. I'm going to talk about just data and the smart city experiment. What we will do today is dive a bit into what data is, how it's generated, where it comes from, what's uses, uh, focusing slowly on the smart city experiment, what that experiment means, um, what the condition of cities are today because of it or um, aided by it. And I'm going to focus on an alternative, which is, might not be an alternative for many people. Uh, might be something that is used in the smart city experiment or uh, in parallel. But I want to pose it as an alternative, um, which is urban science and policy, the study uh, or the topic that I study. So what is data? We are living in exciting times right now. Um, I talk to all my students about this every year. Uh, We're living in a data revolution where we can be a data scientist, we can be an urban planner, a policymaker, and all of these professions are slowly making use of data or big data, as it's called, uh, because simply because the world is producing a lot of data. Even a mere act of buying a book, reading it, and then uh, I think many of us also re- leave reviews on Google, and um, I don't leave reviews, so I don't know what it's called, but Google Books or something like that produces data in today's world, right? So much of data is being generated by all of our activities, walking, talking. And there's always data being generated around us. So it's an exciting time for everyone to um, look at these different sets of data to understand human behavior and other sorts of activities and processes. And especially in my field of study, um, it's an exciting time for urban planners and policymakers because they can use this to study things that have only been either theorized or conjectured about or uh, very difficult to understand over a long period of time through longitudinal data. This is basically a quantification of phenomena through the systemic recording of data, taking all aspects of life and turning them into data. Sometimes this happens inadvertently because of activities that we do, because of um, subscriptions that we might have, and sometimes this is done for a specific purpose to actually collect data and then use it either for research or commodifying a service and so on. So some examples that I'm sure uh, many of us are aware of are credit transactions, public transit data in many various forms across the globe, tweets, um, Facebook likes, Spotify songs, etc. There's so much more that this slide would be full of different kinds of examples um this is the massive data revolution that we are living in that i'm talking about and abundance of data exists everywhere around us it also has certain implications so first of all it might not be that this all this data is generated to understand human behavior but it has given researchers and companies and organizations a lot to start looking into human behavior at large scale to understand how societies organize how um systems organize how organizations also uh, work, and to understand this at a very broad scale, but also at the same time to understand this very deeply, maybe on a personal uh, or local level. There are opportunities also that arise for optimization of systems, industrial systems, internet of things, new buzzwords are coming up every day, planning different kinds of systems around the world that can be done quite easily when you have access to this data. Because you can study the performance of a system and then optimize that for a different direction or value that you envision for it. But of course, with this comes a lot of issues with representation, privacy, not including people or communities, um, selection bias, and so on and so forth. So there are lots of implications also of this massive inadvertent data revolution around the world. Why is this happening now? So as you see on the left side, um, found this interesting image online while trying to figure out why this is happening now. In 150 BC, China invented paper. And today, not that much longer, 2006, big planetary companies like Amazon, Google, and so on have created clouds of all kinds where every piece of information or data that we generate, every byte or bit of it is stored in these clouds. So there's massive data generation, massive investment in technology to improve computing power, new uh, kinds of languages like R and Python that are more functional programming languages that anybody can use without a computer science degree also to produce a lot of good information. And of course, new visualization techniques, new software for visualization techniques, Um, a lot more interest and awareness of design and information design has led led us as a society to a point where a lot of this data is is useful, but also being used properly to design narratives and stories to talk about what we need to talk about. Of course, this has negative implications with misinformation and disinformation that we all know now living in COVID in the the past two years, but um, it also has a lot of positives. And I think that's why this is being used by various researchers and organizations. Things have also changed on the methodological side from statistics to uh, machine learning, which is actually just a fancy term that a scientist decided to give um, to the activity of statistics for large data sets in 1969, I think. Um, name of the person was Arthur Samuel. Did this for IBM, if I'm not mistaken. Just to have it as a marketing technique to lure more clients into the business. Um, and what's next? I think recently Google um, started talking about super intelligence because intelligence is clearly not working. So we have a new concept of super intelligence. I don't know what that will bring. But this is the general progression of using a lot of data to train systems because we have all of this massive infrastructure around it. That's why we are living in this massive data revolution. I think at this point, many people have said this, that between dawn of civilization and 2003, we had only created five exabytes of information. And now we are creating that every two days. So you see that there's an exponential and maybe even uh, a more steeper uh, progression of things where data is being created, both inadvertently and, and by choice. Uh, lots of examples of what that data looks like, where it comes from. So, transportation systems are movement patterns, geographical data. We have systems like OpenStreetMaps and, and Google Maps, and more pr- proprietary settings like Kia Maps and Nokia Maps and whatnot. Um, Cultural data, where books are being codified into cultural data that uh, people can use now to study a lot of different interesting cultural things about our society. Scientific data, of course, um, from biology, physics, chemistry. There's also banking data and statistical information, weather patterns, data related to climate change and, and natural phenomena. And all of these are different forms of data, but most of them look the same way. They are either in formats like CSV files. Excel notebooks, JSON files, which is a specific category of files that are shaped in a certain format, and shape files, which are more geographical data related um, that focus on latitude and longitude and tell us where every piece of information is actually located on the world map. Right. So there's a lot of different data sources, and most of them look the same uh, when you look at the, the meta information that it has. But data alone is not very valuable for anybody. Right? Just having a bunch of data, we as humans are not capable of discerning any information from it. If we look at these spreadsheets, we will never understand anything from it. So data does not lead to action directly. And on, on the action side, it's just an example of uh, an article that says the impact of urban proximity, transport accessibility, and policy on urban growth. And shows a longitudinal analysis of the Netherlands. Um, just because some of us are um, hosting the school in the Netherlands, I thought this would be a nice image to show that a lot of data was had gone into understanding how to shape this region of the Netherlands that we live in, in the Randstad area. I will not go too deeply into this example, but how do you convert data into action? We need methods, tools, and techniques to turn data into actionable knowledge, to understand what's going on in, the, in these spreadsheets and how we can extract information that is true, of course, factual and, and legitimate, and Talks about a story that we are we care about. We want to talk about to influence policy or influence a different direction, depending on our value systems. Um, so before I move on, I'd like to. Uh, post a very simple quiz online, um, and I'd like to ask you a question. So every time I go to different meetings with decision makers, I hear this thing a lot. Let's solve this problem by using big data. None of us have the slightest idea what to do with. And um, these conversations often lead to nothing. So I would like to ask you, uh, can you think of a real-world context where data and statistics are being used to make a difference, and how? Um, Mostly positive differences, but of course, negative uh, differences are also welcome. So please raise your hand or uh, post something in the chat, and I will reiterate it to the audience and discuss it. Yeah, so a lot of data was used for COVID analysis, studying COVID in different formats. Uh, There's so many studies that came out. Uh, I think science was overwhelmed by publishing all of these things. But yeah, climate change is another avenue where data is used to understand the patterns of our changing climate. Uh, More specifically, something that I'm interested in, to strategize COVID fighting mechanisms. So what kind of pharmacological or non pharmacological approaches might be used and then you need data of human behavior uh, also about the the biological components of covid as well from a standpoint of developing new medicine then there's about climate modeling uh, a lot of data is used for car accidents to study maybe historically how car accidents uh, affect communities or how they occur and what might be the reason for it and then trying to mitigate the number of accidents Data is used for disaster preparedness, um, maps data for traffic, but also for disaster. It's used to to understand poverty. What are the determinants of poverty? How might we mitigate it? Used to understand housing. The housing crisis in the Netherlands is quite big right now. I'm sure it's much bigger in other parts of the world. (laughs) Educational statistics for traffic planning, bus routes and train routes and the amount of people. Um, Yeah, some of those have already been discussed. Data on sexism to show the gaps Uh, in gender or sex, in terms of perhaps accessibility, different services, transit analysis, data on politics, how might people vote and why they're doing that. So let's continue. I just wanted to do this to also understand that we are all seeing or observing data from different aspects. So we might see it being used in different environmental contexts or different contexts just around us in space. And we might use it ourselves also for personal uh, things. And the point is that data is everywhere and is used, is being used everywhere. Um, So we also talked a little bit about what we need for uh, turning data into action and the study of that is perhaps now called famously or infamously data science. It is a bit more than statistics, a bit less than computer science, a a bit of mix of the two, where there's lots of computational tools to do programming that is efficient and that's why we also have uh, functional programming languages to do it more quickly. Uh, Also for visualizing things that we want to communicate. Has communication skills as part of it for storytelling, because it's important not just to create an algorithm, but also to understand what the data is telling us and then use it for the purpose. Uh, Also has domain expertise behind it. So data scientists can come from biology, from uh, mechanics, from climate change, from transportation, water studies, wherever you talk about there is The scientists working in the field, because there are also theories and domain expertise that is important to understand why the data are the way they are and how they can be used to shape the systems that we are talking about in our specific domains of interest. And these are the methods, tools and techniques that are used to turn data into actionable knowledge. Now, this um, itself can be a course or a course for two or three semesters or, or a degree in itself. And at the end of the class, I will share a link where you could do something like that for free, because it's a course that I teach at you. It's open source materials. You can go through it step by step over eight to 10 weeks. Right now, I just wanted to give a a brief overview of what that might look like. Um, And when we talk about data and data science, this is a famous example that comes to mind. Um, This is a map designed by John Snow, so not the person from Game of Thrones, but a famous epidemiologist from back in the day in 1854. Um, John Snow used this map to mark spaces where cases of cholera outbreak were taking place and find out where the pumps were situated from where the water was being used to actually understand and isolate the, the problem and the cause and address it. Right. So this also shows that space is very important because a lot of things are spatial around us. Um, And this is one of the most famous and my favorite examples of using data for a very simple, in a very simple manner to understand a problem that was very difficult to understand without having a map and without having the data on those cases. So if you're interested, I've posted a link here also that you can uh, search yourself and read more about it. And that brings me to geodata science. So space is important. Uh, and a lot of this you will also hear from others in the subsequent sessions. Um, and that leads me to geodata science, which is basically um, the point here is that a very large portion of all these new data that we are talking about and that you actually share in the chat are inherently geographic. They have a latitude and a longitude or an xy-coordinate that can be traced back to some location over space uh, and maybe also over time. So spatial is actually very special because it helps us understand the big picture, not just the small picture about a problem, but also how different things might be connected for a certain problem. And some of these methods require an explicitly uh, spatial treatment, and that is um, a bit more advanced than data science, more focused on geodata science. We will not go through those methods specifically, but you will find them in my course at the end. I want to play this video and I'd like you all to uh, to look at what the United States Census is telling us about. The stories within the numbers, the framers of our country embedded the census in the US Constitution and made it a tool of the people.
0: Thomas Jefferson said, let's count how many people there are in the country and figure out how we're going to divide things up based on that. And we still do that today. There's nothing as big as the missions that government gives you to do. We have to reach
1: every single person 300 million plus in the country
0: getting all that basic information that ends up being a massive amount of data we're talking about terabytes of data our challenge was to get all that data out there in a way that people could use it intuitively It made sense having an easy-to-use interface that's simple to understand. In the background is Google Maps. On top of it, we've overlaid our own data and these controls that customize it for our needs. You can learn about all different kinds of areas. You can drill down into it, you can interact with it, and the map works fast. To really have a fluid experience. They want it to happen within a 10th of a second. So we can provide
1: these rich profiles and portraits of the country based on collecting just 10 simple questions from each household. It's our job to share this content with the people who paid for it, the taxpayers, and to make sure that data is in their hands in a simple and visually pleasing way. Working at the Census Bureau, by definition, means you're part of history. we are taking a snapshot of the country that centuries from now people will be looking back at. And that really is invigorating. So I call this good old thick data. Actually, I don't. My uh, postdoc, Juliana Gonzalez, she coins such data thick data because it has been collected. Traditionally, through surveys, through other kinds of uh, methods of data collection over a long period of time, this is the US uh, Census data, this is the US Census Bureau sharing this video, talking about how census data is collected and shared with the public, and they have uh, various scales of resolution for this data, but it's only available every 10 years. Right, So that's why it's also sort of thick data because it's very relevant and important but you can't collect it on a daily basis. Um, but you see that it is spatial in nature and it can be mapped onto a map to understand broadly speaking what the overarching picture of the, the census might look like in any region in the world. <coughs> Sorry. So good old data is has got positives. It's traditionally data used in the social sciences. It's these kinds of big experiments for data collection are done for a specific purpose, like the census data. Carefully designed, collected for that purpose, detailed in information. So it provides very rich profiles and portraits of, in this case, people and cities and regions, very high quality. But it requires massive enterprises. The the U.S. Census Bureau is a huge organization that employs, if not thousands, hundreds of people around the country. Every single person um, doing such a a job or contributing to it is costly, right? And only big countries and wealthy countries like the United States can do that. Um, So it's also not something that is accessible to the rest of the world or uh, as a service or uh, as something that might be useful for them to study their own regions. It's course and resolution to preserve privacy that need to be aggregated. So it's not about per person, but it's about regions, smaller regions that can be aggregated to give you bigger regions at different scales. And of course, it's slow. The more detailed, the less frequent they are available. Some countries have it five years. Some countries have it 10 yearly. So it has its pros and cons, but it's still very useful. And it's used in multiple uh, ways in urban sciences or urban planning. Some examples are surveys, sensors, interviews, indicators that are used and tracked for longer periods of time, like livability and so on. And now, because of the data revolution that we've seen, we also have new sources of big data. So on one side, you have the thick data, which is more traditional. On the other, you have the big data. These are accidental in nature. They're created for different purposes, but available for analysis as a side effect for many of us. For example, Twitter, Jack Dorsey didn't create Twitter for academics to research human behavior. It's just a a side effect. And now they've come to a point where they've released a platform where academics can tap into and get all of the Twitter data from the beginning of Twitter's time. They are very diverse in nature, different resolutions, uh, not always the same quality and detail, but potentially detailed in both space and time because they're generated by big big data systems and infrastructure that has the capacity to store all this information um, through various devices and means. Quality, of course, also varies greatly, and so does use and misuse of this kind of information by companies that produce it, but also other organizations and people who have access to it. A um, Couple of examples of how these data have been classified in the literature, so Lazar and Radford say, There are three ways to classify them. They're either digital life data, digital actions like we do on Twitter, Facebook, and Wikipedia. That's our online life. They're also digital traces, record of our digital actions like call detail records. So if you're using your phone and moving around in a city, then leaving a digital trace behind that is stored. And they're also digitalized life. So these are non intrinsically digital life, but in digital form like government records, which is nothing to do with our online presence, but are stored in an online format. Another example is uh, by Aribas Bell, where they talk about three levels, how data is generated. So they are either generated bottom-up by us as citizens, um, as sensors, producing information about us or about other phenomena or things. Um, They are also intermediate- generated so by digital businesses or businesses going digital a lot of during the internet um, when internet became a huge thing around the world a lot of businesses went online and that also generated a lot of data and then it's also top down where governments store data for a lot of different activities happening in the city one example in the netherlands in wow. the hague the hague ciphers which has indicators of neighborhoods and people and communities for many years I think around 30 to 40 years in the past. Um, Another example that one of my students shared with me once was um, this one, uh, PLAN, which is an organization that focuses on girl safety. And this platform created a a new project, free to be, where citizens are generating data from various cities, Um, Delhi, Kampala, Lima, Madrid, Sydney, and marking on the maps where people feel safe or unsafe, just to understand the big picture of where, in a city, communities, especially of uh, non-male communities, are feeling safe or unsafe in various parts of these cities. So this was an example where data was used for some good. Um, I hear some echo. I think someone's got their microphone on. Uh, Please, if you can, mute yourself. That would be very helpful. Thank you. So that was it about data, kind of like a crash um, discussion about data, different kinds of data, different sources, the big data revolution and the geodata revolution. Um, So what can we use this data for? A couple of things that I am interested in to study and generally what this course talks about, a few global urban challenges like climate change and so on. So this image, although it It's beautiful imagery, it's quite tragic, that shows urban inequalities uh, across many different spaces around the world, uh, especially in the Global South, but also in some Western regions. These are photographs by Johnny Miller, an actually photographer, documenting urban inequalities from space uh, around the world. And if we talk about urban inequalities, we know that 50% of the world's population, as Roberto has already pointed out I think last session, is moving. It has already moved to urban areas. And about 2050, we expect 80% of the population living in urban areas. And many urban areas are looking like this, where communities are divided along social and spatial lines. We'll have rising seas, forced displacement and migration of people. We already live in economic inefficiencies where dependent on consumption. So more of these uh, spaces will be built. And as a result, there's a lot of Uh, pressure on these urban spaces. So there's growing energy demand. And you can imagine that urban inequalities are going to further exacerbate in the future uh, instead of reducing in the current climate that we are heading towards. And this is not just imagery. Uh, We've done some analysis in our lab uh, where every city that we look at around the world, these are some that I could pull up quickly. It shows here the curves. Uh, are basically accessibility to different resources in every city. And you see the distribution of that accessibility is kind of a skewed normal curve. But what it suggests is that many people in the city have low low to medium accessibility and very few people have high accessibility. The yellow parts are regions where people have high accessibility and the darker parts are regions where people have low accessibility. And this is true for most cities around the world. Uh, We tested 54. And what you see in these curves are, again, this is the curve that you saw previously, but there are two kinds of communities that arise from this. So who has high accessibility are very high income people, low ratio of visible minorities. They have high education and they pay high rent because they can. And the ones who are in the yellow curve here, the most um, where the median is shifted to the left Those people who have lower accessibility, they also have low income, high ratio of visible minorities, low education, and high unemployment among those communities. So inequalities exist in real manifestation of accessing resources around their living spaces. And most often, it's the same communities that are suffering and struggling. And these are going to further exacerbate if things don't change. So urban inequalities are manifesting in space. Um, and why they're manifesting, I don't want to talk about that or conjecture on that. There are many different reasons, but access and opportunities are an important factor in trying to reduce them. So a lot of scholars agree that bringing more access and opportunities to communities who are struggling is imperative in improving their livelihood and providing them upward mobility of any kind in life. And it's imperative in trying to get better levels of education, um, more social community or social resilience, access to healthy lifestyles, better options for food, and also healthcare. And once communities have that, we could start thinking about addressing inequalities uh, and improving their livelihoods. So there are disparities in access and most of them are manifesting in space. It's possible to see them, it's possible to study them. And then we know how to bring uh, more comfort or improve those inequalities through access and opportunities for people. And that leads me to the smart city experiment because a lot of the urban challenges, the answer to that has been by municipal governments around the world to focus on making their systems and their spaces smart and thinking about the smart city agenda, promising smartness everywhere to try and improve or uh, address a lot of the urban challenges that we faced uh, or have been facing. And the smart city imaginary looks something like this. So I found this image, credit goes to KSB pumps. They are, I think, a company that designs water systems, but it fit in what I wanted to actually say. On the left side, you can see the smart city Imaginary focuses on everything has to be connected or super connected and intelligent. You have your energy systems, you have your airports, you have your land use, your pipelines for everything that is super well connected with transport and land use. And all of that feeds into the center of this image where you have this high rise city where only a select few have access to all of these resources. But on the right side of the image, you see that a lot of people don't have access to any of these resources. And that's kind of the metaphor that I got from this image is that as we are moving towards this smart reality and the smart city imaginary a lot of the communities are being left behind so this begs a question we are designing smarter cities and thinking about smart mobility energy healthcare and all of that but who are we doing that for who gets to access those and who's left behind so The smart city experiment is a a complex one, but I think it focuses around this triangle of power, technology, and capital. Uh, There are only a few companies in the world that have the resources and infrastructure to market those technologies that are necessary for smart cities. And I think it's a way of wielding power over communities, over cities to try and claim space and use that as an experimental uh, setup. All of that technology and power comes with capital, or capital is necessary for it. So smart city experiments are a way of of urbanizing the capital or reinventing areas by focusing on capital and not on communal well-being of people or on the real problems that people face. So this amazing paper by Jathan Sadowski called The Cyberspace and Cityscapes on the Emergence of Platform Urbanism focuses on... um, on a framework to understand the smart city experiment and understand the dynamics, the uh, power, technology, capital dynamics of the smart city experiment around the world. It has three key elements, oversight, operation, and ownership. Oversight focuses on uh, the fact that a city is is outsourced or the oversight of the city is outsourced uh, to tech companies like IBM and Cisco. Operation focuses on taking control over the operation of services that are essential to the functioning of urban life. And ownership focuses on um, the technology capital being owned by these companies. So spaces that we use are now not public or government focused, but are uh, owned by companies um, that buy these spaces to try and transform areas in the, in the with the idea that they want to focus on communal well-being. So I want to give a few more pointers about this because this will be used in the exercise later on. Um, these three can be looked on as stages of a smart city experiment, according to Jathan Sadowski. The first one is oversight of city governance. So the idea here is making the city uh, an entrepreneurial test bed, using tech to make cities more efficient or promising that it will be more efficient, convenient, and livable for people. And these technologies haven't been developed with these problems in mind right they existed at the same time the problems existed and then was sort of a way to market these technologies to then support governments in addressing problems that might never get addressed because of those technologies um, i think it started with the the examples of ibm and cisco who intervened in a lot of cities around the world i think in the 1980s or so on act like consultants who redirect and guide urban governance And this kind of dominant imaginary basically exists still today, even though it doesn't work, because you've already invested in infrastructure, so that cannot be turned around. Uh, Like we can't really just destroy roads at the whim of uh, some governments. The second stage of this experiment is the operation of city services. So transforming our social interactions by placing platforms that we use between us and um, services that we need. Examples are Uber and Airbnb, for instance, that come and restructure existing practices of the governance that is happening in cities, facilitate processes of value creation that don't necessarily focus on value for citizens or communities, and reorganize conditions of labor and markets for a lot of workers who get sucked into these businesses. Finally, the third one is about ownership of city space. So there is governance and services, but now we are actually seeing companies own city space, like Sidewalk Labs in uh, Toronto, in Canada. So these planetary platforms also own space and focus on economically struggling municipalities that are dealing with a lot of decay and deprivation. And a neighborhood, uh, what they focus on is, let's transform a neighborhood to an innovation lab where we can do whatever we want. right? So, those are the three key elements of this framework that is uh, very useful in understanding different kinds of smart city experiments and seeing whether they work or not. And I think what's important is to understand how that situates with urban governance. So, governance is in many cities disintegrated because there are complex priorities among different stakeholders who are trying to address them without necessarily working together. It's also focused on utility or utilitarian policies where solutions are tailored to the whole region or city without thinking about the underlying uh, disparities within communities. And finally, I think it's focused on neoliberalism where attracting investments is very important for city governments to attract more white-collar workers who are highly educated and who want to consume more amenities. So focusing and connecting back to the urban inequalities debate where access is segregated to only a specific, select few people. And all of this because cities are complex. Cities are uh, very complex structures, problems of organized complexity. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with Jane Jacobs' work. uh, And she details this very eloquently that dealing cities basically are problems of organized complexity where we are dealing simultaneously with many factors which are interrelated but can also be studied as a whole. So on the left you see uh, a figure by Sarah Miro where uh, she defines urban resilience in these four layers. It's similar to what we are doing here today. We have an infrastructure layer among us for our conversation We have the Zoom network and and email and whatnot where we can talk. We have uh, flows. We are flowing information back and forth to each other. And we have a governing network that is organized by Roberto uh, and Caroline and others in which we are situated and and having this conversation. And there are different socioeconomic dynamics that are arising as a result of that, right? Some of us have difficulties in accessing Internet um, from where we are. Some of us don't have access to these planetary companies like Zoom or their software to work uh, as we want to. So there are these different socioeconomic dynamics of equity and justice also arising in this small example. So you can imagine on cities scale or that level, there are very different complex processes going on. And because of these complexities, it's very important to, um, to think about the smart city experiment as a whole and not just focused on a few communities. And at the risk of being reductionist, I think the smart city experiment has failed. There's also a lot of um, evidence for this in literature and also anecdotal evidence around the world. But I just wanted to share how it might have failed and what are the key aspects that we should focus on. And now I want to share quickly in a couple of slides before we move on to a break, um, what is the alternative that I'm proposing? And many people have proposed before me. So urban science and policy is the study uh, where we can study the fundamental processes that shape urban spaces. in, And it's a very transdisciplinary field of, of research because you can't do this alone as a physicist or a computer scientist. You need all kinds of knowledge coming together. Why this can happen is, like Jane Jacobs said, cities are problems of organized complexity. If you look on the left, um, if you map cities on this graph, On the horizontal axis, you have the population size of a city. On the vertical axis, you have urban indicators of various kinds like innovation, energy consumption, crime, disease, infrastructure, et cetera. And these have typical patterns of arrangement in cities depending on the population size. So this complexity can be studied through traditional methods of complexity science uh, or longitudinal analysis of, of data from many decades. But also now we have new data, new big data and thick data that we can combine with data science methods to study this more deeply. So this field is really emerging. A lot of people uh, work on this this study these days, which is great, because we need a lot of different disciplines to try and understand the, the cityscapes or urban spaces together to address the real problems of inequality and climate change and other big challenges that we face today. So urban science and policy, um, as many colleagues share, this notion should be uh, focusing on an integrated systems theory of urbanization, where we can essentially focus on providing um, more socially resilient communities, sustainable infrastructure for energy, for transport, better forms of economic systems that are decoupled from consumption patterns, and so on. And I think this can be done not just with data and data science methods and a transdisciplinary uh, field of work, but also by rejecting the smart city imperative and thinking more about how we can study the re- real needs of people, how we can analyze the real problems that people are facing, communities are facing, and use data for the good by researchers, by communities, by, by citizens, uh, and so on.
0: This lecture was originally recorded for the Manifesto for the Just City workshop, organized in partnership with several schools, the Institute of Housing and Urban Development Studies of the Erasmus University in Rotterdam, the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, the Winston-Salem State University in North Carolina, and a number of universities who took up this exercise as a class exercise, notably Morgan University in Baltimore and the Cape Peninsula University in Cape Town, South Africa. This event was organized by me, Caroline Newton, also from TU Delft, Hugo Lopez, Professor Russell Smith from Winston-Salem University, Carolina Luneta from IHS in Rotterdam, and Professor Faranak Miraftab from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. This podcast is produced by Roberto Rocco and Hugo López. Music by Hugo López and Pablo Teixeira. Sound edition by Hugo López. The Duty of Care podcast is sponsored by the Delft Design for Values Institute, the portal for design for values research, education, outreach, and co-creation at Delft University of Technology, advancing knowledge, methods, and best practices in the area of design for values. The Duty of Care podcast is sponsored by the Delft Design for Values Institute, the portal for design for values research, education, outreach, and co-creation at Delft University of Technology, advancing knowledge, methods, and best practices in the area of design for values. If you're listening to this podcast on Apple Music, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify, and if you want to learn more about spatial justice and our duty of care towards the planet and each other, don't forget to hit subscribe. See you next time.